Hello and welcome to Scopunk International, the podcast. I'm your host, Chris Reeves. Today's episode is a special celebration of the 15th anniversary of the Flaming Tsunamis album, Fear Everything. This is a full album breakdown of all of the album. Yep, every single track. And to do that, I'm joined by Andy from the Flaming Tsunamis. Andy actually reached out to me and said, hey, the 15th anniversary of this album is coming out. Is that something you'd even be interested in kind of talking about or maybe even doing a breakdown? And I was like, fuck yeah, of course I want to do that. This is one of my favorite albums of all time. Of course I want to talk about Fear Everything. So we plan to do that kind of right on Halloween weekend because it came out in October. So this is not the exact 15th anniversary, but it's also the Scott Mug International one-year anniversary, Halloween weekend. This album is kind of heavy, deals with some kind of like scary, spooky themes. And so figured like, this is the perfect time to do it. So Andy and I talked about every single track on the album, learned tons of facts, so many things that blew my mind that I didn't know about that I never would have guessed or things that I assumed were right and I was wrong. And it's awesome. This is such a good breakdown. I had so much fun talking to Andy, talking about one of my favorite albums. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed making it. So here's the full album breakdown of The Flaming Tsunamis, Fear Everything. Andy from Flaming Tsunamis, actually here. (laughs) Here I am. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So we're here primarily to talk about the 15th anniversary of Fear Everything. So let's talk about Fear Everything. What What is going on in the world of Flaming Tsunamis? What was the time like back then in 2006? Like, give us some info. Sure. So Fear Everything for us represented, and probably for me specifically, a really big shift in, in the Flaming Tsunamis one, because it was at a point where, you know, we had formed in high school, we'd had a million lineup changes, and there's sort of three of us that remained core members, myself, Greg, who plays guitar and does vocals, and Ethan, who does bass, and we had kind of a revolving lineup of drummers and horn players, and, you know, as it goes when you're a high school band, a high school ska band especially, And we kind of had gotten to this point where all of the key members were either graduating or dropping out of school. And we had a chance to really kind of give it a go and tour as much as possible. Uh, You know, previously we'd done, you know, some summer tours. We on winter breaks during college, we'd try to go down to Florida and back or something. But this was like, okay, let's record an album. Let's like hit the road as much as possible. And so we had... Uh, we had lost our drummer. We had lost a couple of horn players. So it was just the three of us. And we, I, you know, I don't know how he crossed our path, but uh, Craig, we, we ended up picking up Craig as a drummer. And he was like a real like metalhead kind of guy, like love Opeth. And so that injected a certain type of energy into the band in terms of like the percussion. And then we picked up two horn players, uh, Logan and John from this band on Long Island called the Vagabonds. And so it was just sort of like this group of six of us that really wanted to make this thing happen in, in whatever, whatever terms that actually meant, but like, let's really be intentional about what we're doing here. And then for me, this was actually my first album where I was recording vocals, knowing going into it that I was going to be the lead vocalist because up, up until that point, the last album we recorded zombies versus robots we had a different singer, Bill, who also played saxophone, who was an original like high school member. And he had kind of quit halfway through recording that album. And 
he had recorded most of his vocals, but we felt kind of weird proceeding on with like this other vocalist. So I ended up re-recording most of his vocals. We left his track on Opus, Opus as his like kind of a tribute to him, but I didn't write those lyrics and I didn't really have much say in that. I was just playing saxophone at that time as well. So this was one where I was going in and I could actually sort of put my stamp lyrically and help kind of shape the overall vibe of the band a bit more than usual. And so that was sort of a, a big thing for me as well. And there was just this period when we were kind of writing and it felt like anything was possible. And I think we got a little weirder on this one and heavier on this one. So that was sort of the, the vibe was kind of this land of infinite possibilities as we were writing this album. Yeah, for sure. That definitely comes across in um, like the album as a whole. And this is actually the, the first album, uh, first Slamming Tsunamis album that I heard. A friend of mine, I worked at Guitar Center. At, um, it wasn't, I didn't hear it till 2006. I, I, I didn't hear it in 2006. I heard it in probably 2008, 2009. But I was working at Guitar Center and I had this friend there that was an extreme metal guy. Like, like we're talking like only, not even like the kind of metal like you were talking about. Like I'm talking like Dragon Force type stuff. Okay. And he was like, man, you got to check out this band, bro. I think it's right up your alley. And he was like, they're the one of the heaviest things I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, man, this is like a ska punk band. <laughs> like, yeah, there's not a ton of like straight up ska punk on here. A little bit, but not a ton. But it's like, they got horns. They got the whole thing. Like, this is a ska punk band. They're just heavy. No, man, I don't like ska punk. Like, okay, well. You kind of do if you like this. <laughs> I feel like we were often people's favorite ska band for people who didn't like ska, you know? And and honestly, even from our very first record, like usually half the songs didn't have ska on them, but obviously that's just sort of the scene you fall into if you have horns. And obviously most of us did really like ska, or maybe I shouldn't say obviously. It might feel like we have a disdain for ska based off the music, but... Uh, it, it is interesting the type of people that would gravitate towards the band and you know we'd go on tour and we'd get booked by a ska kid one night a metalhead the next night a noise kid the next night punk kid the next night and we'd play with whatever random bands they were into which fit that genre and we had to kind of squeeze ourselves into the show so uh, that story definitely checks out yeah um and so what's that kind of been like since really not just this album but kind of like since you're kind of like not really doing the band anymore like who do you hear from the most because like i'm spending most of my time in scott punk of course but i feel like even around here yeah it's come up on the show but not other places and like this album specifically was referenced by like that jer track that came out earlier this year right mm -hmm. and a lot of people are like what the fuck is this like when jer's talking about it i just i'm wondering from your side like yeah like what, what do you what have you been hearing since then like do you still do people talk about it to you like I mean I, I think that the crowd that it still resonates with are the fans and, and listeners that we made in the ska scene I think that we definitely have I definitely have friends that are very much not into ska that still like the band and might ask if like something's ever going to happen again or something like that. But I feel like anytime it comes up, it's usually because of something within the ska scene. And I think that 
it perhaps has been coming up a little bit more now because bad operation is popping off and D-Ray, their, their trombone player and keyboard right. player, was a member of TFT towards the end of our run. Um, and I actually was a member of their old band, uh, Greg and D-Ray's band, Fire Than Albert, for a little while as well. Right. So I think it's just kind of come up in that way. But I also feel like the this album, it's not the best recording. So I kind of understand if it's, not the type of thing that someone who's never heard of us, if they listen to it right now, that it might be a little bit harder to get into as a result of that. So I, I really don't know. Like, I, I don't know what the legacy of it is. And, you know, I often kind of joke with friends. I was like, if we played a reunion show, would there be 10 people there or would there be a thousand people there? I have no idea. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of what I feel like. But even going into doing this episode, I have no idea if he's going to give a fuck, but I do. Like, I want it. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, I think that, what I noticed when we toured is that because what we were doing was different enough from a lot of other bands and, you know, there was definitely a handful of bands in the ska punk world that were doing like really weird stuff, but we all had our own flavor of it. And so I think because of that, people who liked us tend to really like us and like really latch on to it. And so I guess that that doesn't surprise me. I think it's very much an acquired taste uh, but for those that acquire it, it, you know, people seem to really, really love it and, and hold on to it. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I'm biased, but I think that it's more likely that people would be extremely stoked if there is a reunion because <laughs> you have so many more bands that kind of like not only bad op and even like the popularity of fatter than Albert before that, but like bands that like actually are in the vein of this sound, you know, best of the worst gray matter have like pretty nice followings right now. Yeah. Um, I feel like even like as a bill of those, like that would just be insane. Right. That would be fun. Yeah. And like the new best of the worst album, great best work that they've ever done. And yeah, seeing that they're kind of carrying that torch along with a handful of other bands is really cool. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the sound is really big in other countries too. You know, a sector has kind of a similar thing. Some of their stuff is like a little bit more traditional ska, but a lot of it is very similar to flame tsunamis, like just heavy, um, really no sky at all um and very like politically charged um so i think there's a there's people out there that if you were gonna do it <laughs> you know some other shows are driving the charge for some reunions like op ivy or something like i'm driving it for the flaming tsunamis <laughs> started here uh, I, I I don't want to bury the lead and, and i will say that it seems highly unlikely that would actually happen uh, we actually got <laughs> very close to doing one in 2020 and it just didn't pan out with certain members in a way that to me says that it probably won't ever happen just because not everyone was necessarily like super stoked on it and if we did it i'd want it to be something that every core original member was like super into doing so you know i won't say it's definitely a no but it's like a 99 percent probably not going to happen at this point yeah well as much of a bummer that is it would be tough to play these type of songs and being like half into it that's kind of not how it works yeah honestly even just relearning some of these songs uh would be maybe not for me but for like horn players and guitar and all that kind of stuff it's there's a lot lot going on there to remember and especially for like when we ever had like new horn players coming in and you know some songs have like five different parts that they have to learn and memorize and uh it's just like a lot it's like exhausting training new members coming in yeah, you need like a whole like training program, <laughs> any like video series or something. 
seriously, we need like a tab book for everybody and just be like, just go <laughs> off and learn this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And honestly, I would expect that from like a band as technical as this, like, here's your flaming tsunamis, like Bible. You better learn that and uh, be ready to play. I'm yeah. not going to teach you. <laughs> you better jump around a lot while you do it. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to get in the album? Let's do it. All right. So track one, tell me about the Riddling Conspiracy. So this track, I think that we very much knew that this was going to be the opening track of the album. And we sort of wrote it to have this really big kind of breakdown intro and a couple of us in the band just like absolutely worshipped Link 80s. Uh, the struggle continues, and you know that that the intro to that album is just legendary, and that kind of the low bass for sure coming in. So I feel like we kind of did a little bit of a tribute to that with just like the intro, the the opening like distortion. Uh, but at the time, it felt like for most bands, you know, a lot of us in the band listened to like uh, a lot of like metalcore and heavier stuff. And there was a very thriving scene for that in Connecticut, where we were from. But it felt like at this point, which was we were probably writing it in 2005, maybe early 2006, the breakdown was something that felt like it had to be earned. It was a thing that came towards the end of the song and you, you built up to it. And it was this big cathartic moment. And not that nobody else had like put a breakdown at the start of a song, obviously plenty of people had. But for us, it was like, what if we just start with the breakdown? Like, what if that's what we do? We do this big, massive, heavy breakdown. That'll be such a fun thing to do live. And for us, the live show was where it is at. Like, I, you know, unfortunately, I think if you haven't seen us, you probably haven't really experienced the band if you've only heard the recordings. And that's kind of really where we thrive. And so I think this song was kind of written basically with that in mind. And lyrically... Uh, the Riddle and Conspiracy, I was someone who as a, at a young age was diagnosed with ADD and you know now we're calling it ADHD. Um, and I was given a lot of Ritalin as a child. I was super hyperactive to the point where it was like really a problem. And as I got older, I got to a point where I was allowed to make that decision for myself if I wanted to continue medication and I got off of it. And then at, for a while, I had this kind of view that this type of Ritalin or, you know, a lot of different medications happening now are like overprescribed and that that was a symptom of a, like an education system that wasn't trying to engage people that had various types of, of learning styles. And that if someone was not able to sort of be punched into that little box of memorizing facts to complete a test, that there was like a problem with them and we had to medicate them and kind of make them complacent. And so that's what the song was about. And it just felt like it'd be really cathartic to be in a crowd of people screaming, there's absolutely nothing wrong with us. Um, nowadays, uh, I actually have restarted medication for it. And I, I look at it more like, you know, glasses. Like if you can't see properly, that doesn't mean there's something like horribly wrong with you if you have to put glasses on, it just sort of helps you function. So I, I think I have probably a, a more nuanced take on a lot of the topics that are touched on on this album, but that was that was sort of what was going on there and i also think this album or this song was very much we were at a point where we were like we just want to make it weird and like cram a bunch of disparate sounding genres together and so that's we're like oh it'll be so fun if we open a show and no one's ever seen us before and they hear this heavy thing and then we cut to this like jazzy swingy kind of part and 
and then people get into that groove and then all of a sudden we're doing this really almost like hard to listen to part that's like focus on this that's like meant to mimic that feeling of not being able to focus and having all these different things going on and we put a lot of layers in there of just chaos happening like hiding real deep in the mix and so so yeah I think that was like the point we were trying to get people to to feel that as well as just have a good time live yeah I was wondering if that was something that was intentional or not because I've always kind of felt that that was intentional but I never knew for sure so that's really cool <laughs> and you know, it's funny because generally the songwriting process for us uh is like going to going to battle because it's a, a bunch of very strong personalities with strong opinions on music and, and that's why we didn't have like a ton of output over the years but uh the process for us was once the music was done then I would put lyrics on top of it so uh, it wasn't like I was like, hey, we need to have a part that was like that's doing this thing. Um, but then as the lyrics come in, sometimes we start to change things a little bit and make them fit into what the lyrics are doing. And uh, it's definitely like a really weird part to include because it's not particularly <laughs> pleasant to listen to. And it's very long and very repetitive. But I think that some of us in the band at that time were really into bands that were doing these long kind of droning, repetitive, almost hypnotic type of things. And so that's sort of our attempt at doing that. Yeah, that's awesome. So what was, you kind of referenced in our like first section, but kind of like what was recording like? So we previously, the last two EPs we did was in an actual studio and with a, a great engineer that we that we loved but this was our first time doing like a real proper full-length album and we just felt like we needed to take our time with it and so we had this friend Jake Goldman and he's he was like a young kid I want to say he was like 16 at the time but he also uh, he was in this band Aeroplane 1929 and they were like a band it was like an indie band really into capturing tones and layers and all that and he had set up a studio in the attic of his parents home and so we had worked out like a flat rate to come in and record these 12 songs so it was a really fun experience because you're just in a house with these big big uh, like I think St. Bernard or Mount Bernie's Mountain Dogs running around and uh, just Jake is a really, uh, wonderful, dry sense of humor. Just, just, uh, just like, doesn't react to anything in a way that's like very funny. And I, I think that this was kind of our vibe was like, let's not try to make everything perfect. Like let's leave in imp imperfections. And uh, our drummer really did not want to play to a click track and just like, let's let it feel like an organic thing and let's like have fun and, and not stress too much about just nailing every tiny little thing. So it was definitely a very fun time recording this album. That's awesome. And did you have everything like, well, we're talking about this one, but then overall, did you have everything kind of like already set or were you figuring things out while you were recording? We, we, we've always gone into the studio knowing exactly what we were going to do song wise, having really rehearsed everything and making sure that we all knew what we were doing the creativity comes in with all the extra fun bits that we, we add in all the fun layers. A lot of those would be my ideas because I, I think of a lot of our songs in terms of 
like what is the visual what's is there like a story here and so adding things in that might add to that story so there's certain parts where you have like party noises in the background or you know all sorts of things sound clips things like that and so there was a lot of moments that were very spontaneously added in like oh we had this friend was hanging out that day why don't you sing a line for us and things like that but for the most part we knew exactly what we were doing going in that's awesome yeah i think um you can hear that, but then also the, um, like the rawness and stuff you were talking about before that, that's probably my favorite part. Like the way it sounds like you would kind of said, like, maybe it's kind of an acquired taste for someone new to the band. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's sort of like, what's more likely to draw people in. Yeah. Like if you're going to be like, Oh yeah, this album is from 2006. Let me check it out. I think you don't want it to sound like it sound like it could come out now. I think you want it to sound like it was done in a more like raw way. That's so cool to hear that it was done in like an attic though. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was like a finished attic. It wasn't, you know, but it's still, it was an attic nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty fucking cool. The the uh, one thing that I will say, cause I hate when bands like talk a bunch of crap about their old recordings, but the one thing about this album is that we spent a really long time getting the guitar tone, like to be really big and huge and, went through the mixing and the mastering. And then when we got the CDs, the guitars sounded like really thin and like not an interesting dialed in tone. And we always had this theory that somewhere along the line, it sounds like the scratch guitar track that Greg played when, you know, when you're getting the drums and guitars just sort of playing just to be there for the drums as a, as a roadmap. And we always kind of felt like it seems like somewhere along the line, some track was turned off. And the guitars, like, you know, that's sort of one thing that that I was always very unhappy with with the album about. And and we, you know, we always prided ourselves on having great tone live and it just didn't come through on the album. So it's kind of one of the great mysteries of this one. Oh, that's so weird. I actually think the tone is so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that it's not received that way from for everybody. Yeah, I don't I don't think it is. Maybe it's just me, but it's kind of blowing my mind that there's like a better version of the tone. (laughs) All right. Track two bird watching and vice versa. So fun fact about this song, the name of the song came from a Mad Libs book that was sitting around our drummer's house. Uh, (laughs) And it just started, we already had the lyrical content of this. And then that came on. We're like, Oh, this is dismatched perfectly. Uh, And then the other little bit of trivia is that the, the song that plays before and after this one our bass player, Ethan, had a job where he was kind of cleaning out and not quite demolishing, but like old condemned houses. And he would just find things. Uh, one time he found this portrait of this man that he brought to the practice space. We named him Leroy. And then he lived in our tour vehicle for a long time. But I believe it was there that he found this like seven inch of this song. And he's like, we need to find a way to squeeze this in the record somehow. So we're like, all right, let's throw it in here for whatever reason uh is just sort of like a part of the randomness of the whole process but this was the first song that i'm pretty sure this is the first song that we wrote for this album with the new lineup there's one song later on world of chaos that was written pre this lineup but this was this song and the next one corpse disposal were were like the ones when we were just like we're so excited and we could do anything with this band and we can try all sorts of different stuff and and we really wanted to come out the gate and be like super hard with the ska but again kind of pulling the rug out from under people and 
get, you know, getting people with like the heaviness and the screaming and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I, I, this is always just like one of my most favorite songs to play live just because of that. Yeah, it's definitely uh, one of my top, probably top three on the record. Later, my top two show up, but um, I do love this one. I do go back to this one a lot. It's in my shuffle. <laughs> um, huge fan. Nice. Well, yeah, it's it's uh, it seems like it's generally a crowd pleaser. I remember we debuted it at some Ontario Ska Fest. I forget the exact name of it, but we opened with it. And this was a show where the other bands were, for the most part, very Ska. It was not like a Ska Punk Fest. There was a little bit of that in there. And we opened with that and people seemed to dig it until the song changed. Uh, and I think that like <laughs> at that point in our lives, we kind of liked being a bit antagonistic we kind of like i love the feeling of being the underdog while playing it's obviously it's great to headline a show and have people know your songs but i always felt more compelled in the situations where we had to kind of prove ourselves and win people over or i guess totally repulse them and so i think that at this time we were like really into that sort of vibe and that's where this a lot of this song came from yeah i always imagined um that Flaming Tsunamis were a band that kind of enjoyed the um, the heel role, I guess, <laughs> because uh, as you referenced earlier, hugely influenced by the struggle era of Link 80. And that's, um, as I've talked about on here before, when I've grown to know them, they would talk about how they preferred the lineups without Ska or the lineups that were like more traditional ska so that they had to like fight the crowd and then by the end have won them over. And I always found that very interesting. And I always just thought Flaming Tsunamis were a similar mindset, even though this is the first time we've ever talked about it, right? That's just <laughs> always how it came across to me that it would be a similar mindset. Yeah, I think we were definitely... Um troublemakers <laughs> a lot we kind of embraced that back in the day uh i don't know how how fondly i look on my my old self at this point in my life but at the time it was kind of a, like a lot of the vibe that we were that we were going for and i, I totally understand what um uh link 80 was saying with that because we often would end up on just random bills and it was always fun like you know we'd be touring and then the the promoter we usually work with has booked some like christian metalcore night and it's like you want to open we're like hell yeah we want to open and by the end every one of those bands and across all genres has at least one person that used to love ska and right. so you'd start making friends with all the random people in these like super heavy bands that are like oh i used to listen to less than jake and you're like the bridge between and and it was always just really fun and I think my mindset was that I was very confident in our live show. And I was like, even if people hate our music, I want them to watch us and feel like they enjoyed the experience of at least watching us play. Yeah, for sure. I don't think that's something that a lot of people can understand. They haven't really been in a band that people might not love at first, mm -hmm. but it makes a lot of sense to me. Like, yeah. And it's kind of fun to watch especially if you like the band. So you know that by the end, the other people around are going to like the band by the end. It's, it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a couple of bands we used to play with. Like, uh, I don't know if you ever came across like tree fort back in the day. Yeah. You know, they're all about the antics and like pissing off the crowd. And it kind of was almost like an inside joke that if you knew what was going to happen, it was great. 
And if you didn't know it was going to happen, you're probably really upset about what you were about to see. Uh, and it was just kind of a real fun time. And we obviously never went that far, but uh, it was, I enjoy that vibe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Link 80 never really did that either. It's just the way like the sound was and the bands that they're like booked with. It's yeah. just kind of like what happened that way. Like specifically, I asked Adam, you know, like, didn't that like bother you? Like, no, we loved it. <laughs> like, it was awesome. <laughs> you would get like way more devoted fans by winning them over than just like Scott kids showing up knowing they're already going to like, like you, even if they haven't heard of you. And yeah. I mean, I think that's like, honestly, what there's obviously a lot of artists and bands across all genres that want to appeal to everybody and not necessarily make enemies and play it very down the middle. And that can work for a lot of bands. But I think that I admire a lot of the bands that are an acquired taste or they're not known in the mainstream, but they have incredibly dedicated fan bases that, are, you know, that they can sustain themselves uh, just because people, the people that love them just really love them so much. And not that we ever as a band sustained ourselves, but I, I think that to me, that's much more of an, and something I would want to aspire to rather than being something that just appeals to everybody. Um, anything else on that one? Uh, well, I guess lyrically, this one is kind of interesting to me because uh, now I am vegan, but at the time I was not. And the lyrics, when I re-listened to them, are very like animal liberation focused and very much sort of uh, talking about how humanity negatively impacts animals or the first verse is about like a neglectful father buying a puppy for his daughter and just sort of how like we sort of use animals as tools to compensate for our own shortcomings. Um, and uh, not even vegetarian wasn't even, even a glimpse in my eye at that point. So it's, it's interesting to me that I wrote these lyrics at that time, but, uh, you know, a lot of our lyrics are trying to evoke some sort of horror imagery. And obviously this one is very much like Alfred Hitchcock's, the birds, just like birds attacking humanity. Um, and the line about shitting on people's heads was something that Greg just came up with and, at that point, we're just like, if something was funny to us, we're like, yeah, let's do that. Just throw that in. And uh, there's just like a lot of things that we used to do that kind of came out of it was entertaining to us. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to look back and see perhaps this was some of the seeds of like my ethics that would eventually develop. Yeah, the vegan pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I like the the shitting on your headline. That's a that's a classic, I would call, <laughs> I would say. It's a fun one live because the crowd all says shit together and just mm -hmm. a, a wonderful moment. Did you ever have any um, like backlash about being like so political? <sighs> not, not really. I mean, I think that we didn't really get blatantly political until our next album, which, uh, you know, is like this album is a lot of, uh, metaphors and you know you know whatever similes I don't know what the words are but you know like there's a there's a story that you can read there's the text and then there's the subtext and then our next album was just like straight text for the most part yeah um, because at the time it felt like when that album was coming out that like apathy was like a really big part of the music scene and we were like I was like screw it like I just want to directly say what we're trying to say um, in retrospect, I think it's way more interesting to have some sort of other text going on there. But at the time, I think that this was written was kind of like 
the phase that a lot of like young people go through, which is like, I'm vaguely angry at something and I think it's related to the government and I think it's society as a whole, but it's not like the most pointed type of, of critique about something. And so I think for that reason, it's like for anyone that does pick up the political stuff for at this point in our career, career <laughs> existence, uh, <laughs> that it's it's vague enough that you can sort of apply whatever you want to a lot of the politics of this album. And so I don't think we ever really got any any backlash for that. Yeah, it's definitely more after this, but I still think it's pretty clear everything that's being talked about. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I Again, I'm glad that that is how it's received. I hope that's how most people receive it then. I think they do. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see when this comes out. <laughs> Because <laughs> there are going to be a lot of my audience hearing this record for the first time, I think. So we'll see. Okay, track three, Corpse Disposal for Dummies. So this one, uh, as I mentioned, was kind of written in tandem with, with Birdwatching. And it was, again, it was like the first two things that we wrote with this new album. And I think with this, we were, we were kind of probably trying to juxtapose it with Birdwatching and trying to do very different things with it. So it's a lot of stuff that's really influenced lightly, I guess, by like Converge and even like the funk riff in there is kind of uh, Rage Against the Machine. Like uh, there's very few bands that everyone in the band agreed on, but like Rage Against the Machine was one that pretty much everyone was was into. And so this was just kind of like, yeah, let's just like make it heavy. Let's do this weird like funk part and let's just go for it as a totally different thing than what birdwatching was doing in terms of bringing in lots of ska really interesting rage i always thought it was more supposed to be like mr bungle or something but now i can definitely hear how it's more rage that you say that you know what's funny is that we always had people asking us like you must listen to a lot of mr bungle and i had never most of people most people in tft had literally never listened to mr bungle i know ethan had our bass player um, who is a who is like one of the core songwriters he's an amazing songwriter um, but it wasn't something that we looked to to try to emulate and and actually because so many people said that I would go and listen to Mr. Bungle and I it just never really caught on with me like I, yeah. and it was it's kind of weird to say this but it was almost like trying to be too weird <laughs> I oh, guess yeah. that that I didn't gravitate towards it oh yeah for sure like I'm not that big of a fan there's like some songs i like but the actual albums i don't listen to the actual albums they're too much they're way too <laughs> it's way too much it's it's not it's not they the albums themselves are definitely not for me but yeah. i i just always thought that riff specifically was more from that part but rage makes more sense <laughs> now, now that you say it i feel stupid <laughs> no i mean listen i you know obviously i listened to this before we started to record and and it definitely, it doesn't sound like the funky part, at least doesn't sound like, oh, this is rage because it's, it feels very like light. Uh, but I could, I could just knowing the stuff we were into, I could hear that kind of influence that was, that was in there. So what about the, the lyrics? So this, this is an interesting anomaly for me because this is one of the, I think the only time I ever had written something before a song existed and I had the song on its surface is about like burying a dead body in your basement and it smells and you have to keep putting new layers of, of bricks and mortar to try to prevent this, this dead body from revealing themselves. And 
for me, I was using that to talk about uh, a relationship that I had that I've been dating someone for a long time and was not happy with it, but it wasn't like anything was wrong with it, but just sort of like mentally, I felt like I was not being like faithful to this person, even though I wasn't cheating or anything like that. But it was kind of like dealing with the fact that I was thinking about ending this relationship and feeling bad about that. So the whole first verse was something that I just like wrote one day, like down in a notebook. And I am not someone who ever, I don't feel compelled to write lyrics. It's usually like a chore for me to write lyrics, but for whatever reason, I felt compelled to do that. And when we wrote this song, I was like, I could, I could make these fit in with it and I could make it about this thing. And then the rest of the lyrics were written to more directly reflect the actual theme of the song. But, you know, it's, it's kind of just meant to be like, you can't bury your feelings. You can't hide your feelings. You have to address them. Or if you don't, they're just going to keep sort of coming back out and, and haunting you. And eventually those that are around you are going to smell that and they're going to be affected. And, and that's, that's where it came from. Uh, the, the line we carry the dead out of town though, is a, a reference to the original wicker man film. And it, there's just this scene where there's a couple of children carrying this like, uh, like doll type thing. And they're just sort of chanting as they're skipping along, we carry death out of the village. And for some reason that always stuck with me. Like when I saw that film, I just like loved that film. And so, well, obviously we changed it to, we carry the dead out of town. Um, and then we had some friends of ours who were women, like record those vocals so that it would, cause we didn't have children on hand. <laughs> and so just to kind of like mimic that. And that was one of the things that was definitely very spontaneous in the studio. Yeah. That scene. And really that movie is insane. Like, <laughs> yeah. So crazy compared to that remake that came out. Yeah. I mean, I guess that one's a little crazy, but it's way crazier than the original one. Yeah, the the new one's like Nicolas Cage crazy, right. but the original, I don't know what it is. It's such a predictable outcome, but it's still so shocking when it comes. And right. I guess I'm speaking vaguely, no spoilers for this like 40-year-old movie. <laughs> uh, but there is something about that film that just really stuck with me. It's such a bizarre movie. There's like musical numbers and uh -huh. yeah. So I don't know. So for whatever reason, that line, I was like, I want to use that line at some point and then we finally made it happen that's awesome that's so cool i didn't i would have never picked up on that since you changed it slightly but that's awesome um and the other thing that i that i'll note on this is that um we had a really good friend mitch doobie who lived in california and would tour with us a little bit and he flew out for the recording of this and the we need more bricks the like high vocal part is the first time you hear mitch on this album but he's He's on several songs on this and he's all over the album that we did after that, but none of us could hit that, that note. So, so Mitch had the golden voice and offered that higher octave. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. I always was like, wow, you really charged it up for that one. <laughs> whole other person. <laughs> I love when there's guest vocalists on albums and our, our, the next album we did knowing that we would be breaking up brought in like lots of guest vocalists. Cause like, well, we don't have to worry about trying to do this live, but um, I, I love having those little things, even if it's just like one line here or there. I always think it's really fun to to have those elements in a record. Title track, Fear Everything. Yeah, this one musically, I feel like is a real departure from basically everything else that we did. Like it's obviously has its really heavy parts, but it's definitely, I don't know, it's just very different. Um, and I don't really know what compelled us to 
right in this style. And it was something that we played live for a while and eventually we just kind of stopped playing it live. But uh, the thing that I really like about it, speaking of guest vocals, is that first verse. Um, Trevor Johnson from this band, La Guillotine, Western Mass Band, great band, happened to be hanging out in the at the house that day. And we're like, do you want to sing this? And so Trevor came in, sang that. And then Craig, our drummer, actually sang the backup harmonies because uh, I don't know oh, if it's cool. evident from the recording, but I am not much of one for hitting notes and, uh, you know, doing harmonies and all that kind of stuff. I just scream and jump around. So uh, like most of the, anytime there's melodic vocals on a TFT record, it's usually somebody that's not in the band providing them. Oh, wow. Well, as I said like in the last one, I thought you hit those high notes. So <laughs> I thought you were doing harmonies and stuff too. So, okay, learning a lot here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that for as much as I said that we're all about the live show, I also really love that we looked at the album as like, let's make something different. Let's do something we can't do live. And maybe not to the point where it'd be unfun, not fun to listen to live or something, but like, this is our chance to like really add things in that will add to, oh, we're trying to do a funk part. Well, we should have these really high vocals in it, things like that. So it's always fun to, to play around with bringing in these different elements. Yeah. And I mean, most people don't want to see the exact same thing from the record live. Yeah. So even if it's like you're taking off some things versus like adding or whatever, like that's great. It's different. That's cool. That's what yeah. I like. Yeah, no, I love I love seeing bands do that. And uh, we have this one older song, Opus, that's usually a set closer that we just like drastically altered the ending of that song between the album and the live version. Uh, I guess even just to keep ourselves interested and entertained in, in playing that song. But um, I, I would like to think that if I saw a band do something vastly different stylistically with their song, I would think it would be a really cool thing. And I love when bands do that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it makes the album special and that live performance special in different ways. And that's cool. Yeah. I, I feel like that's what you want. Yeah. So what about the, uh, the lyrics of fear everything? So this is uh, hopefully very obviously satirical and really trying to use hyperbole to point out the ridiculousness of I guess like Western imperialism and capitalism and just sort of this sense that this earth is a resource for us to use up and spit out at the expense of all other living beings and other, you know, obviously other human beings as well. And again, I don't know if this is like the type of lyrics that we would write like nowadays, because I almost feel like I'd be, I would feel weird singing some of these lyrics now. Like usually Greg says most of the ones that I'm like, Ooh, I wouldn't want to say like fuck diversity, like in a, in lyrics now. But uh, at the time it felt like we really were like, this is gonna hopefully like break through to some people that don't understand how ridiculous it is that what we're trying to do is like homogenize the planet and use up all these resources. And yeah, I, I think that's it's pretty much the lyrics in a nutshell. Yeah. So that was the big thing that I was wondering is if you have ever had anyone completely not understand that this is a tongue in cheek type thing. And you're saying the opposite of really what the lyrics are saying. Uh, you know, f funny enough, there was, I used to be a person who would argue a lot on the internet and uh, I got into an argument with somebody who then quoted back this song uh, the homogenize the the earth 
line uh, back to me as if it was like refuting what I was saying that it like, I don't even remember what the argument was, but essentially it was, you know, I was like, Hey, uh, I don't know. You shouldn't be mean to people or something like that. And this person's like, Oh, you think everyone should behave the same. And don't you see how that's like the opposite of what you were singing about? Like you don't want to homogenize the earth. And it's like, I don't know, like expecting a basic level of decency across humanity. I don't view that as homogenization. I just view that yeah. as like basic respect. So Sure. Uh, that was, that's the only time that I can remember someone like we weren't getting like really conservative crowds coming out and like unironically singing along to that song or anything, at least not to my knowledge. But for the most part, I think it's so over the top that people must realize that it's, that it's satirical. Yeah. I mean, that's how I've always viewed it. But as we've seen in recent years, um, that doesn't always go the way you think it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, like we've seen tons of videos lately of, the uh, the conservatives co-opting like American Idiot and different Ragings Machine songs and um, thinking that it's talking about, you know, the really any of the specific issues going on now in the world. Yeah. And that's just so wild. Like, it's so obviously not doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, sites like The Onion have a hard time now because things that would be obviously satirical eight years ago now you kind of have to double check and look at the source and see if this thing is actually a legitimate story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They famously said, um, I think it was Julie Dreyfus, like we're ending V because like, it's not funny anymore. Like all, all the stuff we're talking about is real. Like they're yeah. doing all this shit. Yeah. It's just the main thing I was wondering going into this. Um, more, spe most specifically this song, that's why I brought it up here was if any, if you had seen any of that, but I'm glad that that hasn't happened. Hopefully it hasn't somewhere else that you just haven't seen. Yeah, I guess, I guess we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a, you get canceled as a result of doing this podcast, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anything, uh, I think the opposite would happen. Cause I know for sure that no one that feels that way listens to the show. Cause I would have heard about it already, or they would have tuned out because we've already gotten way more into these issues on other episodes. So we'll see. So anything else about like, the songwriting or anything on this one okay well, okay i guess i will say the other element of this in this song is the little the ding the little zell bell thing that at the time was very in vogue for like the metalcore scene that like oh, you yeah, have the sure. breakdown and then you have the ding and uh, there's some of us in the band that were like really into that type of metalcore and i would say thankfully the other half of the band really reigned those tendencies in and i think that that was definitely like to to the benefit of us but every now and then we'd sneak something through like that yeah i think i first heard that on um i don't remember the song anymore but it was definitely poison the well did it yep yep yeah i think it's probably to your benefit that you did fully indulge those tendencies because those albums didn't really age that well yeah yeah, I agree fully. Okay, so track five, The Great Red Cross Robbery. This is one of my favorite songs on, on the album. Um, it's, it's really fun to play live. And I don't, I don't know what it was. We're just like, let's try to do, like so many of our songs are like, let's try to do this genre and see if we can try to pull it off in some way. And so this one, of course, was like, can we incorporate some level of surf rock into the the sort of general heavy scottish kind of style that we do 
Um, and I listening back now, I'm, I'm really pleased at how we were able to sort of incorporate that into and make it feel heavier than one might typically find it. And uh, yeah, so, so like musically, that's definitely where this song was, was born out of. Oh man, I'm so excited that you brought up the surf rock thing. Cause I always was like, not sure if that was truly the intention here, but that was always my feeling. I thought I was just like, maybe um, almost like manifesting the surf rock influence <laughs> because I love surf rock so much um, or more like, uh, like rocker from the crypt or something like mm-hmm. it just, um, which is kind of surfy, but not really. And it just always felt like it existed within this song but not like overtly. I'm so excited that you brought it up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can't say that anyone in the band like really listened to any surf rock or rockability to any like serious extent. I had, you know, a couple bands I would listen to, but I I think a lot of it is we were just like, let's challenge ourselves to like play this, this style of music and hopefully make it interesting on some level. Yeah. That's cool. I'm so excited. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So what about the lyrics? So lyrically, this is also one of my favorites on the album because I love uh, songs, whether it's ours or anyone else's, that like paint a really vivid picture of some kind of story. And so uh, there's this uh, hip hop artist, Astro Nautilus. And on this one song, there's a line, I tried to wash my teeth, but never could remove the blood stains. And that line always stuck with me and made me think about like, the story of a reluctant vampire, like someone who was a vampire, they had to feast on the blood of others, but they really didn't want to do it. And like, what would that be? How would that manifest itself? And so kind of, you know, telling the story of this vampire that's stuck in this, you know, midnight eternity, as it says in the lyrics, like you, you can't be in the daylight anymore. You're just sort of stuck in this one particular time of day and wandering the streets and trying not to throw up and, uh, ultimately, of course, deciding to rob a blood bank and and feeling like that was the more ethical way to 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 go about dealing with this you know obligate need that you had, and then uh, the the subtext of this, which I don't think would be obvious really to anyone, was that at the time I was I was dealing with a pretty intense eating disorder that involved a lot of binging and purging, and so that feeling of not wanting to throw up because you felt like you, you're like, if I cannot throw up, then I'm not going to continue this cycle. Um, and so that kind of feeling transposing that over into this like vampire, that's, that's just, you know, tr- trying not to puke up all this blood and feeling horrible about it uh, was just sort of my way of kind of dealing with that and talking about it openly without anyone know that I was talking about that openly. So um, yeah, I, I, I personally, I really like how the song works on those two different levels. And that the second level, I assume is probably not obvious to anyone, but um, I, it's one of my favorite songs for that reason. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. And so th- thankfully I have that under control now, so don't worry everybody, but uh, yeah, it was, I don't know. I just, I, I appreciated being able to do that. And I appreciated that the band basically just let me do whatever I wanted lyrically for the most part. Like it was, you know, musically, we picked apart every little thing as we were doing it. But lyrically, it was kind of like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't want to think about it. Yeah. So, you know, that's what kind of shaped. And I was also in charge of like, you know, merch for the most part. So album art, all those things. And that's kind of what put this veneer of like horror, but without being a horror band, you know? Yeah. Interesting. And I think that also helps 
not fall into the whole like metalcore thing because a lot of the art as well with those albums is not great but i think these are still pretty kind of almost iconic like yeah they're really really they age really well i guess i should say yeah well shout out to todd rogers who did the artwork on this um and our friend joel who did the photography and the liner notes um who if people don't know joel joel um did like photography for like every ska band ever and like all, mm-hmm. all the bands just like super talented person um and so i think that that definitely helped working with graphic designers and photographers that actually know what it is that they're doing yeah it makes a huge difference a lot, a lot of bands that just do it themselves and i get it diy but if yeah. you know someone or can pay like a little bit to anyone that's a little professional it makes a huge difference yeah. Well, if anyone's seen the cover of the first EP we did, Focus the Fury, that was 100% my graphic design. And you can see a huge difference between the next two albums and that one. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say you're right, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was like, oh, let's uh, throw distortion and this cool font and a star, yeah. you know, like it's just sort of you're doing what you can on, I don't even know what program it was. It was probably like in word or something like that. So right. Like paint. Yeah. Yes, paint or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I get you. Totally get you. So, um, well, I'm glad to hear that you have gotten all of that under control as well, because often you find out about meanings of things like that. And like, well, it's still an issue or like, well, that's actually the reason we lost a person or something. So yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, me too. Me too. But I guess also musically, like that's part of why the outro is like not a big, the breakdown. We don't end it at the breakdown. Like it's kind of meant to be the sorrowful thing. Um, that's like a sort of a, a sad situation. And again, I can't say that like we wrote it for that reason because I put the lyrics in afterwards, but it kind of helped shape everything. And like the the tone of the lyrics hopefully are kind of... Um, you know, yeah, sad and, and bittersweet and regretful and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that tone definitely comes across. Just never really picked up on the rest of that meeting. Very, yeah. very cool. Very interesting. Well, not really cool for you at the time, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. Um, and the, I guess the, the one like fun tidbit in this song, the little sound clip that says it's time to kill is Christopher Walken. Uh, from from the movie Pool Hall Junkies. And the whole sound clip is it's too late to be scared. It's time to kill. But when we went to put it in, we just didn't leave enough space. And like nowadays, you could just digitally stretch things out. But the way we were recording, we weren't able to do that. So we had to like cut this clip down to this tiny little thing. And uh, that always made me a little sad that the whole thing wasn't in there. But uh, the guy, uh, Alan Douches, who master of the record was like real stoked when he realized that walk-in was in there it's definitely walk-in it's very clearly walk-in the question <laughs> is always like where is that from yeah if you really love me my favorite track uh, uh this is a this is a very fun one i would say that this this was definitely us saying let's just write something that's fun front to back that's dancey front to back and maybe we'll incorporate some different styles of danciness but in general like we just wanted to do something that would be like a fun song to play live and and sing along to live and so i think musically it's sort of as simple as that in terms of the the uh, inspirations for for coming up with it 
yeah, I mean, it wasn't my favorite track for a while, but as the years go on, like that's the one you want to hear because usually I'm in the mood where I want to be a little more like dancey and kind of like, I wouldn't call it upbeat, but upbeat. And so yeah. this is the one that I'm going to go back to. So, yeah. And lyrically, this is another one that I feel, um, I have mixed feelings about this one. Um, the, the inspiration for it is uh, a film called The Return of the Living Dead, which is, in my opinion, one of the greatest zombie films of all time. It's, it's yeah. incredible. And yeah. one of the storylines in that is this couple where the guy gets bit, gets turned into a zombie. And this is a, like a comedy zombie film. So it's one where the zombies can, can talk and have motivations and whatnot. And so this guy, this zombie guy wants to eat his girlfriend's brains. And there's a point where she's kind of holed up in an attic and he says, you know, I, I know you're in there. I can smell your brains. And that, so that's where there's a line in the song that does that. And then there's the, um, yeah, if you really love me, you'd let me eat your brains. He says something along, along those lines. Um, you know, like, I also understand that it could be taken as like a depiction of like a really abusive relationship. And this idea that like, you have to sacrifice things and hurt yourself for your partner. So I feel kind of like mixed feelings about this. I kind of stopped putting this on our set list towards the end of, of the band's run, just because I was like, ah, we, we can kind of leave this thing off, even though it is super fun to play live. But um, I guess I kind of recognize it might not be the coolest thing that we've written. Yeah, I never really picked up on that until now. I always just kind of figured it was about maybe not that movie specifically, but something like that. Like, yeah, the one that was not as like heavy and like had all these messages and things seemed more like story. Um, but I can definitely see that interpretation now. Yes, yeah. uh, I could certainly see people feeling not great about that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously there's something to be said for artist intentions and not being responsible for how people receive things and all of that. So, you know, it's very much this is a song with no subtext whatsoever. It's just straight up a tribute to this this zombie film. Um, but I guess just knowing like the the horrible situation statistics on like you know uh partner abuse and violence and things like yeah. that i always I, you know it's kind of one of those things where i'm like mm, i don't i wouldn't want to contribute to that even if it yeah. was very unintentionally but uh but musically it is definitely a very fun song yeah for sure and we've seen a lot more stats on that lately due to all the lockdowns and things and so yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and it's one of those things it's something that i think about a lot too not the song specifically or whatever but like the idea of like the responsibility towards like the audience and portraying out like any ideas that might be misconstrued, how much of a responsibility you have. And ultimately I end up being kind of conservative on that and being like, if anything seems like it could be a little questionable, I'm not going to be part of that. I'm not going to put that out for yeah. anyone that could take it the wrong way. And so that's probably the right move for you to kind of start to move it away from the set lists. I mean, the, the, the example of that that is, I think, much more clear and much more blatant is we have the Dead Girlfriend song on the previous album, which is one yeah. that, like, we unequivocally disown and, and like, condemn that. And again, it's something that's meant to be, like, uh, I don't know, comical, but it's something that our old old singer wrote, and the intention was, like, necromance, I guess. And 
uh, we defended that song for a long time, but now I'm just like, I can't, I can't defend that song whatsoever. I, I removed it from our band camp. It's still on iTunes or whatever. Cause I have no control over that, but uh, it's just one of those things that I'm like, I regret that we wrote that song that we played that song. We defended that song for so long because even if that wasn't the intention, I feel like it much more blatantly so than this song is one that's like, man, that really could contribute to this attitude of, of, of violence against, you know, marginalized genders. So, uh, you know, that's one of those things, I guess we just sort of have to live with it. That's sort of a part of the catalog. And some people really love that song, but uh, for us, for, for me, especially, it's something I like unequivocally disown and, and don't think is a cool thing that we did at this point. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense. And that's good to do. I mean, good to grow and good to like own up to things like that. I mean, some of what we reference about like metalcore stuff, not totally aging, like the kind of like references to all types of like dead stuff was all over those things. And you can just hear this type of stuff all over it, like extremely like in depth and detailed and things that you just go, Oh, this is not great. Yeah, it's 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 pretty rough. Obviously, lots of things don't age well, and and I I guess my position is like, uh, let's learn from it, let's recognize it, let's spot it, let's discuss it, and 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 do better moving forward. So, it's uh, it seems like in general things are kind of moving in in that direction. Obviously, there's still some bands that play off for shock value in ways that I think are really detrimental to you know, a, a lot of people, I guess the health of a functioning society and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like there's much more attention is being paid to these types of topics. So um, I guess that's all we can do at this point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't think it's my favorite song anymore. Now <laughs> hearing more about that. I'm so I, sorry. I, I talked to you out of it, but <laughs> no, no, no. As we just said, that's what it's going to have to be. But the other, the next song we're going to talk about would be, it would have been my number two. That, mm. we'll, we'll just switch that to number one. Uh, the one last thing I will say about this song is I think that the guitar tone on the solo is phenomenal. Mm. And I think just aids to this argument that somewhere we have good guitar tone hiding somewhere and some track just got clicked off. Yeah, for sure. So it stayed on the guitar solo because it was a different track, but it yeah. disappeared everywhere else. Yep. So I don't know. I'm assuming that that's the case, but it, you know, the forensic evidence points towards it. <laughs> Oh, that sucks. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to track this down. It's gonna be my new uh, my new cause. It's your new investigative journalism podcast. Yeah, it's gonna have to be the spinoff, the uh, the search for the tone. It's time to earn some Skybucks. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the breakdown of the flaming tsunamis. Fear everything in just a minute. But first, I want to talk to you about Patreon, specifically my Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash International and join the SPI Patreon for as little as a dollar, and there are tons of cool perks. Things like joining the Scotpunk International Discord that's only for patrons, things like discount codes for the Scotpunk International store, previews of things that are coming out on Scotpunk International Records, lots of stuff. So head over to patreon.com slash International to see what all those perks are and sign up. I would love to have you. It'd be so much fun. I have a goal of getting to 100 patrons. I can get rid of ads. Currently, we're at 23 patrons, so we're getting there. It might sound like I'm not that close, but I am. It was only at like 10, like a month ago. So things are really, really moving fast. So join up, and I'll see you there. I haven't talked quite long enough 
to where Spotify and Anchor would allow me to play the ad, so let's kill a little time. So I plan ahead and I grab some facts about tsunamis. We're not talking about tsunamis themselves during this episode, but we are talking about the flaming tsunamis. So I picked up this article called Incredible Tsunami Facts. So here's some facts about tsunamis. First of all, a tsunami is not just a single wave, right? It's a series of waves called a wave train caused by an underwater earthquake. That's actually kind of sick, actually. It's not really because it causes a lot of damage, but the idea of an underwater earthquake, man, that sounds awesome. Okay, so fact number two listed here. Only on very few occasions is a tsunami caused by a giant meteor in the ocean? A giant meteor in the ocean? What the fuck? That's actually terrifying. Okay, about 80% of tsunamis occur in the Pacific Ocean's ring of fire. Now we're talking. See, now we're getting to a flaming tsunami. You know what? I think that's enough facts about tsunamis. I've rambled enough. I've wasted enough time without that. Learning is never a waste, but I don't need to take any more of your time. We want to get back to the breakdown, right? So we learned that 80% of tsunamis occur in the Pacific Ocean's ring of fire, and that seems pretty relevant to the flaming tsunami. So let's get back to the breakdown of the flaming tsunamis, Fear Everything. Okay, so the first rule, my new favorite song. All right. You, this is a song that's like so fun to play live, but is so, I guess, meaningless to me from a lyrical standpoint. Um, it's it, it definitely plays into that thing I mentioned earlier, which is just sort of this vague sense of anger at the government and society. And I, I feel like this one was kind of just like need something that fits in with this type of music. And these are the themes you often hear in this type of like punk and hardcore. Um, but I can't deny that it's really fun to scream bomb the White House with a packed crowd of people. Right. Uh, and at the time that this was written, uh, George W. Bush was president. And so, um, you know, for those that weren't really for the younger crowd, uh, George Bush was at the time probably the most hated president. Obviously, things have changed with, with Trump, but uh, with the background of like the Iraq war and 9-11 and, and things like that. Um, I think that it was really cathartic for a lot of people to, to be able to scream that. Yeah. The, it's really weird to like, that came up a lot recently with um, some younger people that I know um, talking about like what the climate of things were like, you know, within the like five to 10 years after 9-11. And this is kind of within that window. It was just so weird how it was like, so patriotic and there's such a big part of the country that just like believed all the stuff he was doing was right and it was fucking awful yeah and there are some arguments to be made that stuff he did is fucking worse than anything trump did sure and um yeah both terrible people obviously but yeah, yeah at the time it's extremely cathartic to be able to like hear that let alone go and like scream that somewhere like yeah it was a bad time yeah, it, I, you know, I remember going to like anti-war rallies and stuff around that time and right. just feeling very, I guess, kind of kind of helpless to the whole thing. And not that like screaming in a crowd of punks is going to like fix anything, but just sort of there is some level of just like getting that out there. And again, being very like, there's no subtext. It's just very blatantly. This is what we're saying. And this is what we're pissed off about. And yeah, nowadays, you know, George W. has sort of been reformed as this like old grandpa that paints kind of thing. I think people really forget about how horrific his, his presidency was. So many terrible things he's responsible for that are still relevant today. Yeah. And a funny story about the chorus 
uh, you know, we were a band that spanned from George W. to Obama. And I would say everyone in the band is on the left side of the spectrum, but some of us are further left than others. And so, uh, you know, some some people in the band were like really like very, very happy about Obama getting in. And some of us uh, recognized the importance of the symbolic change, but also knew that a lot was not actually going to change. And so uh, Greg, our guitar player, was feeling conflicted about telling people to bomb the White House with Obama in there. So we came up with this situation where in, if you we told the crowd, you can sing the original lyrics, bomb the White House, or the updated lyrics, you can say Obama's White House. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, so Greg would say that and Ethan would run up and say, he's still an imperialist. So it's kind of like the fun, fun divide in the band over, over whether we should continue those lyrics or not, but I stand by him. Yeah, that's the whole thing now, too. You know, it's good to get Trump out, but like Biden's still not great. Yeah, Biden, uh, Biden's the worst. And we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing lots of things play out right now that is kind of like if this was happening, you know, with right now as we're recording, this is the uh, the whole debacle with the Haitian immigrants being exactly. at the border. And uh, there's certainly a lot of people talking about it. But I feel like if that was something that happened under Trump's presidency, there'd be a lot more outrage about it. And having Biden in the White House seems to have really made a lot of people very complacent as to the, I could go on and on about this, but yeah, yeah. very complacent and um, it's not good. Yeah, exactly. It's not great. Like we can take, say bad things about him too. Like yeah. it's still the government. They still do bad shit. That is not an in interest to most of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. So anything, not great, but, uh, so any, <laughs> anything else, um, on this one, uh, you know, the, one of my favorite parts of this song is the outro, which is probably one of the more ska things that we have done. Yeah. Um, and we always thought it'd be a fun thing to do live and have the horn players kind of trading back and forth, uh, this, the solos and things like that. And then we, we're shortly into the tour cycle for fear everything. And Logan, our trombone player had to go home due to like this ear infection thing. And then ultimately decided not to come back and not to, to be in the band anymore. And Logan's awesome. Love Logan. Logan's playing like big D and like the toasters and stuff now. Um, but at the time we were just left with one saxophone um, who we eventually kicked out as well for being, just a garbage bag of a human, but we were like left to have this like big ska part with only one saxophone and like <laughs> solos, you know, it just, it just like didn't work at all. So we ended up cutting out the end of the song and we would just, you know, the, that would just like end the song and then we'd go into something else. Um, and then oh. that kind of stuck even when we did have two horn players again. Um, and I think that, for anyone that was like seeing us live, they could start to see the direction we were heading in based off of the changes we were making to songs and which songs we were choosing to play. Uh, and I don't think that the next album would be much of a surprise to them. But for those that were just going off the album, I think that it would be like more of a shock to be like, oh, this is what they're doing now. But if you saw us live, that's what we were doing long before we started to record the, the last album. Yeah, I mean, that's part is part of why I like the song so much, but I, I can understand why that would be what happens, especially the direction that things go. Yeah. Um, and like Ethan, 
he's just such a good songwriter. I love the bass line uh, throughout the whole record. I, as I'm re-listening, I'm like, man, Ethan really nailed it. Like great sense of melody for the bass line. And I think that's especially true in that, that last kind of ska section as well. For sure. Yeah. Um, I have talked quite a bit to uh, Pook from Beat the Red Light and now Redeemon and has talked quite a bit about how the, the bass playing on here, Ethan's bass playing is a big influence on the songwriting of, uh, I guess he hasn't told me specifically about Redeemon, but did tell me about that for all the Beat the Red Light records. Nice. Um, especially on Salt the Lands. That bass playing is awesome. And yeah. it influenced a lot of people. Yeah, no, I mean, Ethan, great. I, th- I think his tone on the record, also great. And um, I- again, I just can't speak highly enough of how he's just such a killer songwriter. So Satan versus the USA. This this is definitely another song that is about really more so than probably anything else on the record, telling a story and painting a really vivid picture of something, uh, which is, of course, Satan being in a courtroom trial against the United States of America. And the, you know, the whole point of the song in the story that's told is that humanity or I guess the U.S. as a collective is like, wow, things are really messed up. We're all really horrible to each other. And we're going to blame Satan for that. And we're going to put him on trial and they ultimately convict him. And then they sense him to hang. And then they're like, yeah, evil's gone. Everything's good now. But of course, when Satan gets up on the stand, he's saying, I'm just chilling. Like I'm doing a little, little tricks here and there, but all of this is you. Um, so on some level, I guess it's sort of an atheist kind of song, um, even though I don't think that was really necessarily the intention. It was more just to kind of speak to, I guess, the lack of empowerment that we give ourselves, that we like say all this stuff is due to outside forces. But like, hopefully it's very empowering to to think, no, like this is our fault. And that means we can also fix, you know, this being, you know, a million different problems that it's within our power to fix these things as well. It's not some outside force that's governing our behavior. So that's, that's like sort of what this is about. And I just feel like it's very, uh, very much painting that kind of story and hopefully giving people a good picture of this. And it was always really fun to play live. We would, sometimes we'd have signs that were like, you know, go Satan or, you know, screw Satan or whatever, and hand them out to the audience during the last party section of the, of the song. And, uh, is always a fun one to play live, but it was also one of the first ones we retired because we kind of got <laughs> sick of playing it. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that this would be a lot live. Yeah, I always thought this as a very like almost like positive song, like you said, empowering. Um, growing up in Texas, even though I was in like my 20s when I heard this, there's still so much like around like people allowing like mistakes or just like anything they do really, not just mistakes to be like left up to someone else, not just religion, like could be any kind of spiritual thing or just luck or like anything. And that always has felt very like fucked up. Like, like you're giving yourself zero credit. Like you got that promotion. Like you didn't pray and get that, or you didn't like pick up a lucky penny. Like you did that. Like you, you earned that shit. Right. And yeah. I always felt like that's a lot what was being talked about here. And I thought that was fucking awesome. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, whatever gets people through, I, I certainly, if, if having some sort of faith is what like makes living in this miserable world tolerable for you, cool. But like exactly what you were saying, which is that 
it's you are you did this yeah especially it's not even like when something bad happens to you and it's like well it's god's plan but when you do something great give yourself the credit for that or yeah. give your network the credit for that but not some other entity out there uh and so yeah hopefully it is empowering for people i think it should be and i think that's what we're going to make it be from now on like it's it's from you like people can interpret songs however they want unless they're uh right-wing jerks but um <laughs> I, I think this should be an empowerment song. And I feel like that's how people should take it. Like more people should believe in themselves and the agency of like what they can create. Well, it's, it's chiseled in stone now. Yeah. We've, we've said, <laughs> we have said it and it is so. Uh, so what about like the, the songwriting and more about that? Um, This one, I don't know if I have much of a recollection of like, what the influences were. I think obviously there's definitely some like pop punk going on in that. And I, I remember more specifically the writing of that, that outro part, which I love the way that it's the, it's the post Satan hanging party and sort of making it like a party jam and slowly bringing in all the different things happening with the horns. And as we record, we just had a whole track that's just us you know hooting and hollering and like banging glasses and things like that um but yeah I, I i don't know as far as like the actual songwriting it felt like we were just like let's just kind of write a punk song because i feel like so much of it is just much more of a straightforward punk song in addition to the other elements okay so world of chaos so this is the song i mentioned earlier that was written before the lineup that ended up recording this record and we actually, there's another version of this song that exists out there somewhere. Um, this group in the Bronx called Bronx Underground, they put on shows um, that were phenomenally well attended. It was always like four or 500 people would come out no matter who was playing. Um, it was like a really great thing they were doing for the, the, you know, the, <laughs> the youth out there. And uh, they ended up recording, they, they put out a compilation and they had bands come in and record. And so we recorded this song um, but it was pretty different in certain aspects. The introduction, the intro section was totally different. It was a very sorrowful, slow thing with just Greg singing and playing guitar. And then uh, one day, I'm pretty sure it was Matt Wixon, but we were uh, at, at like a practice and Matt was there and had a melodica. It, it was either Matt or his Mitch, but I, I want to say it was Matt. And Matt just started kind of playing that melodica part. And it, we're like, oh, this is what this needs to be. Like, we definitely need to make this much more of a, a fun, like, I don't know how to describe it, like New Orleans band going through the street mm -hmm. kind of vibe with the song. And the, the lyrics there were written by Greg. Um, so it's one of the few times where I wasn't writing the lyrics on this and just about a relationship that he had at the time. He was in a pretty intense relationship. So um, I'm pretty sure that's like about as far as the, those lyrics go. Um, and then when we recorded it in the studio, our friend Mitch, again, he did, he did play the melodica for sure in the studio. And the other big change we made was the, the ska verse that comes a little later in the song that I don't believe existed at all. We certainly rewrote uh, the horn line. It's one of my favorite horn lines on the on the whole record. Um, but this is definitely, again, indicative of us like, let's put together a bunch of weird, different genres and, and like cram them together and hopefully surprise listeners with what's going to come next in this song. And 
I think it's also the first time we tried to do a breakdown of that type of breakdown. And so I'll just sort of, I'll just sort of came together uh, in, in that way and evolved a lot over time. Yeah. That breakdown is so cool. I love that part. I'm glad that you like it. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, my inflection there says that I don't like it, but I do enjoy it as well. I didn't mean to be like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, Oh, okay. He hates it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That happens a lot where I'll say like, Oh, this is one of my favorite things. Like, yeah, I hate that. That sucks. Yeah. So no big deal. I'm used to that. <laughs> Especially like when you play something over and over and over, yeah. like you just get sick of stuff. Sometimes it happens. Yeah. And, and I, I am of the school, like with live shows where I love becoming like a precision machine. I love playing the same set over and over again and making it maybe not flawless, but just as tight as possible. And some of the members of the band were of that school of thought. And some of them were, you know, were like, let's switch it up all the time and would get more easily bored of things and want to move on and write new songs sooner uh, and so as a result, yeah, this is another one that I think we stopped playing earlier on than most of the others, just because we had played it for so long. Yeah. I've, I think I'm more with you. You kind of like, I haven't really played live with a band in a long time, but like honing in on specific things has always been more appealing to me than having to be ready for like any put like set list, like the way, like you hear a lot about like fishbone, how like Norwood will just write a set list. And the rest of the band doesn't even know what the set list is going to be. <laughs> like that seems insane to me that's so many songs you have to be ready to play all the time like, yeah i i can't especially with the the songs that they play like right. that's not easy uh my sister is super into the band fish yeah um, i am super not into the band fish but <laughs> yeah. i've learned much about them and they don't even write a set list they right. just come out and like do what feels right. And apparently they played like 13 nights in a row at Madison Square Garden, didn't repeat a single song. Uh, and that that level of uncertainty would just drive my anxiety through the roof, I think. Like I love, I was the one writing the set list. So I guess I had mostly the ultimate control unless there was some strong consensus to do something else. But I love kind of knowing exactly what we're going to do and how it's going to play out and then let some organic moments happen throughout the set. Yeah. I, I like to prepare things like I'm all for like improv. I mean, I wrote notes for this, like <laughs> this conversation, but this specific section, we're improving a little bit. We're actually talking, right? So yeah. you, you can have room for improv, but I like to prepare stuff. Like, otherwise you're going to, it just stresses me out too much. There's, yeah. there's too much unknown. Yeah. I meticulously prepare for like anything. The first time I did karaoke, I was like, outside studying the lyrics mm. before going in i'm like they're gonna yeah. be on the screen but i just want to like yeah i want to know that i'm gonna like really do this kind of thing so for sure that's the type of human i am for sure i do the same thing like i'll think three or four or five songs that i might want to do and i like even practice them earlier in the day <laughs> just to like be like oh yeah i can hit that note that'll be okay like it, it'll be okay even if I have like a little liquid courage later and I'm like mm -hmm. more confident hitting the notes, if I can do it now, I'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. Or like make sure I don't mispronounce words because they're going so fast across the screen. It just stresses me out. I feel like that's a good quality to have as a podcaster. Uh, I find <laughs> that like maybe not so if you're like going to let it kind of uh, paralyze you in terms of getting stuff done, but 
you know, when you're doing something where you have to talk off the cuff, I find that for me, it's really good to prepare. Well, I mean, you don't want to just like say shit that doesn't like mean anything or like facts that aren't true or whatever. Like I like to, a lot of my notes are like things that might happen. So like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I have that fact right here. And then I'll go check it. Like that's happened a few times here since we've been talking. I just, it's better than like, okay, hold on. I've been a guest on shows where they actually will be like, hold on, let me look that up. And you just like sit there and like wait for them. (laughs) And then they like pick the conversation back up. That's weird too. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just, I don't want to be like that. I want to be prepared, but allow the conversations to happen. Yeah. I feel you. So anyway, that's what it seems like you prefer for your shows. Definitely. So um, anything else on that song? Um, well, lyrically, I think this is just, again, it's another one of those, I'm vaguely angry at stuff. I think this one's maybe a little more pointed at like the futility of trying to thrive under the the crushing weight of capitalism and, and just speaking to that idea that there's sort of this myth that if you work hard and you just persevere, that like good things will come to you. Um, and obviously, uh, we're not all on an even playing field. And so I think this song was the early stages of like anti-capitalist leanings kind of kind of starting to form in my head. But again, I don't think it was like as pointed as it would be if it was written, you know, nowadays. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Like, especially like listening back, like obviously I was listening to the record like multiple times over the last few days to get ready for this. Um, Cause as I've said a few times, I really only would go back to like three or four songs a lot over the last couple of years leading up to this. And now I can hear like, oh yeah, this is kind of an anti-capitalist song, but not like truly like saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of like how it is. Like we're kind of a similar age, like in your kind of like, early 20s ish you're not like quite aware how much the system is like controlling these things but you like know that it's not fair yeah and so that's kind of like how this is written where it seems to be coming from and that's like just the process of developing some sort of ethos you know when you're young right. and you're like something's not quite right and you you know is bands like against all authority and choking victim were the first bands that i heard that were like very political right and and that kind of like opened up a whole world for me and our our old singer bill we're like super into those bands and going all the shows together and you know but those you know you can only accomplish so much in a song you're not going to have like a super nuanced take on some really in-depth issue you're going to have some bullet points on something or just an expression of rage and so Uh, this is sort of just like that process is like putting your ideas out there, seeing what sticks, what doesn't, and hopefully developing some sort of actual internal sense of integrity and moral compass and going forward from there. Yeah. And I mean, even if you have like your full view formed, you only have so much time in one song, Yeah, which which is why a lot of bands, you know, they they talk between the songs and talk about what's going on and some people hate that, but it does help people that don't fully know what's happening or are kind of beginning to form to kind of like think a little bit more. And that's why bands always are going to do that. Like they're not, they're not going to stop doing that because they didn't get to fully get their point across in the song. I 100% love when bands do that. Uh, I'm, I'm so into bands getting on their soapbox box and like preaching to the crowd and yeah, for a while I was really into learning about a lot of like the nineties, like vegan straight edge bands and stuff like that. And people and bands that were just like taking a really hard stance on something. And even if it wasn't necessarily my vibe, 
like whatever the stance might be that I like really respected a band that was like, this is what we're about. And we're going to talk about it because it's important to us. Um, I think that's awesome. Uh, do I want to go to a show where literally every band does that? Probably not. But I, 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 I really appreciate when bands do that and when bands like actually stand for something. I've seen some bands that I love that I assume would talk about their politics or something on stage. And then they're just like a goofy having a party band. Um, and it's been disappointing and that's on me for my own expectations, but, sure. um, you know, I, I love it when bands are very, very pointed and direct and explain what their, what their deal is. Yeah. I don't want to hear that stuff probably like four or five bands in a row necessarily, but at the same time, I'm way more bummed out if like Angelo from Fishbone, since we brought them up already, doesn't go on a rant about, you know, fuck racism, and everything. Yeah if that doesn't happen, like, I'm going to be like, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> yeah. And he's, I don't think he's ever not done that, but um, I don't think it's on you. Like if a band is like, so like explicit in like what they're talking about and then they are not talking about that live as well, at least a little bit in between songs, that's on them in my opinion. Yeah. And, and I definitely started to be more outspoken towards the, you know, from this album onward, and especially in the externalities era. Um, and I kind of liked that our crowd wasn't necessarily like the most political crowd of all time. And I felt like that's actually good. Like I'm hopefully exposing people to different ideas than that they're going to encounter otherwise. So, um, you know, cause we had a real, we had just like a great, wonderful umbrella of weirdos, you know, that would come yeah. out and see us play. So I, I appreciated that opportunity to talk about whatever was on my mind. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like we're asking for like a five minute lecture or whatever, you know, you say a few lines before the thing, you know, like literally things we said earlier about Biden, like that was like, what, 30 seconds or something. Yeah. And then you go into the song, like, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. And I, I wish all bands would do that, that have something to say. If you don't have something to say, like, I don't expect the fucking Aquabats to do that. But um, <laughs> imagine if they did, though. It would be Imagine cool. Imagine if just like out of nowhere one day Bat Commander just like whips out his like anti-capitalist manifesto and just starts. I would love it. Yeah, I mean, I'm here for it, but I don't <laughs> expect them to do it. Okay, so Bennett Brower. Well, this is the antithesis of anything political, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, I... For anyone that doesn't know who Bennett Brower is, um, he's a character played by Chris Farley on SNL, and people probably know him as like the air quotes guy. Uh, he'd be on Weekend Update, and he would, you know, he'd be like, uh, So, what if I don't wear clothes that fit me, or I don't own a toothbrush, and things like that? And so, uh, I, I don't know how many bands did this back in the day, but when we toured, we had like three or four DVDs that we kept with us, and we would watch at people's houses and like adventures of pete and pete seasons one and two was that but one of them was the chris farley best of dvd best of snl dvd and so there was some pretty heavy chris farley worship happening in the band and this song was just like let's just write a quick sort of grindcore type of song i don't think it quite hits all the grindcore notes but something that's really fast and really heavy and let's just put some nonsense to it. So all the lyrics are just lines that are directly said by, by the Bennett Brower character. 
And so it's just like, it's a fun song. You know, we would often, as I was mentioning earlier, get put on shows with lots of very heavy bands. And when that happened, we would often open up with this song because at least in our heads, we're thinking like they're seeing us setting up keyboards and horns and things like that. And we want to give people right out the gate something that they're not expecting and and just kind of do that. And I think that that often like really broke the ice with a lot of those bands that we would play with. So it was it was definitely a very fun song to, to play live and just like just absolutely just a goofy song to write. And of course, we throw in the uh, the sound clip at the start that's almost as long as the whole song that is from uh, Dirty Work. So obviously, R.I.P. Norm, but uh, of Chris Farley putting on a song from the jukebox. And then, you know, that became a thing when we play the sound clip live and the whole crowd is talking along with the sound clip. And that's always a really fun thing to happen as well. Yeah, I was a big fan of those um, collections back then. Farley was definitely one I watched a lot. Mm -hmm. He's a legend. Yeah. So, but yeah, the song really, it just does not go any deeper than that. It was just like, let's do something short, fast, heavy, and let's throw some obscure Chris Farley behind it that I'm sure has gotten way more obscure over time. Yeah. So fun fact is that I actually, until really like hearing this album and the song, like recognizing some of the quotes, not even knowing like what that character's name was like, <laughs> like I'd seen the skit. Sure. They like say it when they like introduce him, but it's like, I don't know. I just never picked up what his name was <laughs> until you named it. <laughs> I mean, why would, why would anyone remember that? It's right. not like, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of his characters, you probably don't remember. Like maybe, maybe people remember Matt Foley, motivational speaker or something like that. But uh, yeah. So, so I think that we kind of like slipping in these things that people might not recognize, but, uh, whenever we would do a show and someone would ask us if we want to put people on the guest list and we didn't have anyone coming, we would put down like Bennett Brower, Matt Foley, Bill Brasky, like, you know, just like put that down and just for fun. And then if we happen to have a friend hit us up last minute, we're like, yeah, just go tell them you're Matt Foley and they'll let you in. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome oh man bill brasky that's a good one too mm -hmm. okay well i mean there's not really anything else on that one short discussion for a short song <laughs> all right well i've never really known the right way to pronounce this one so i'm gonna try right wag tag pag that's what i've always said it's uh weog tiog piog aha so the have you ever seen the film return to oz yeah, I have, but yeah. I don't re remember it that well. Film that scarred many young children, including myself. And there's a moment towards, I guess, the end of the film where they're being pursued by this witch and they make this makeshift getaway vehicle. It's like a moose's head strapped to a couch and there's some like palm fronds for wings um, and they sprinkle this dust over the couch. And uh, those are the words that they have to say to bring this couch and this moose head and stuff to live. To, uh, so that's why we called it <clears throat> the powder of life as well. Got it. Okay. All right. Yeah. We watched that in like English class in like high school, but like that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 95 or 96 or something for me. So I just don't remember it that well. And even when I would have heard this, I wouldn't have remembered it that well. I, yeah. I wouldn't expect anyone to, to pick up on that, but I love when bands have, sound clips to to weird things that maybe you 
10 years later, you're watching some old TV show and you're like, oh, that's that. That's the thing. I, I like I love stuff like that. And yeah. obviously, as a band that's like really influenced mostly by like, I guess, horror films and sci fi films. But and this is I mean, this is basically like a horror film for kids. It's pretty <laughs> disturbing and terrifying for. Yeah. You know, if you're like 10 years old watching it. Um, but yeah, I just love kind of like slipping those things in there. Yeah, we actually had to get a permission slip signed that it was okay to watch it at school. <laughs> that doesn't, that does not doubt me. I mean, it starts out with Dorothy is getting like electroshock therapy because everyone thinks that she has gone insane. Right. Because she's talking about all her friends from Oz. And like, that's how you start the follow up to the beloved, the sequel to the beloved Wizard of Oz film. I think a lot of people didn't know what they were in for. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. So what about the the songwriting here? So this one, I think we were, we were just, I guess, trying to prove that we could do this because we would end up playing shows. Like, you know, we played with the Slackers several times and who was actually one of my all-time favorite bands and just kind of be like, yeah, we can play this style too. And I guess people can judge uh, how successful that was, but I think we, we're just like, yeah, let's prove that we can do this. And um, I don't really know where the second half of the song, like whose idea that was, but you know, the first half being this very mellow and kind of Scottish reggae-ish kind of thing. Um, and the, the outro that's like three minutes long is kind of a, speaking to that thing I was talking about earlier of this like long, repetitive, almost hypnotic kind of drony kind of things. Droning is not the right word, but um, I, I love stuff like that. And, and a few of us in the band listen to bands that do that, like Torch or The Assistant or something. And and that's kind of like what the ending kind of evolved into. But uh, this song is notable because I think it's one of two songs that we've ever recorded and never played live. And this song, actually, the vocals are by our bass player, Ethan, who wrote the lyrics for this song. And he was not able to play the bass line and sing at the same time. So he did the guitar and Greg, our guitar player, played bass. And we had designed this song to actually be able to be played live where they would switch the instrument. And that's why there's that long ring out that happens at the end of the song while the sound clip comes in, because we actually practiced it that uh, that, that could ring out and then they could switch guitar and bass and then we could go into the next song. But for whatever reason, we, we never played that song live. Um, but Ethan did write the lyrics and this one is about uh, our good friend, Dan, Dan Langun, who was the lead singer and trumpet player for infamous Jake and the pinstripe mafia, who anyone who's listening that like ska punk needs to go listen to their album uh the beginning of the end because it is just one of the best ska punk albums i love it absolutely it actually contains a cover of one of our old songs on it where they totally redo it and make it much better than the original um but so so dan and infamous jake they were kind of like our early on our our brother band you know like some bands just sort of connect with each other and we shared members we played shows together all that stuff. Um, Dan, me, Ethan, and Infamous Jake's drummer, Matt, started a record label, Kill Normal Records, that we used to release our records and some other bands. So we were all very, very tight, uh, like best of friends. And then Dan was performing with his newer band, The Modern Day Saint, and he experienced an arrhythmia on stage. He went into cardiac arrest. Um, and 
thankfully he did not die. There's some, I believe, medical professional in the crowd that kind of helped things. But basically he went into a coma and when he came out, he had really limited mobility. He was basically nonverbal. So very much not the person that you knew, like it's him, but it's not him. And it's kind of a weird situation because your friend didn't die, but you're kind of mourning the friendship that you did have because it's just not, you know, it it feels like he's only there in physical form um, as opposed to like the emotional friend that you used to know. Um, so Ethan wrote the lyrics about that and just sort of, you know, a, a tribute to him and talking about like, hey, moving forward, like I'm going to do, you know, the work of the two of us. And um, none of us had heard Ethan sing before, but we're like, sure. And he got in the booth and we're like, wow, he has the voice of an angel. Like, that's just <laughs> delightful. And so he he really surprised us. He actually sang on another song that we ended up cutting. Um, it was like a straightforward pop punk song that was on the record, but um, yeah. So, so that's kind of this, the story of, of this song. It's a very, obviously a sad backstory, but um, I think it's a very beautiful song. And it's one of my favorites on the record, uh, possibly because I have literally nothing to do with it. I don't <laughs> do anything on this track and I can just sort of sit back and be in awe of all the amazing people in the band, you know? Yeah, that's a, wow. That's a lot. I always um, connected to it because I have a friend that died when I was in college in a car accident and it seemed like it was about someone dying and I can totally hear how it would emotionally feel that way when, when uh, he didn't actually, but it would sure feel that way. And that's probably why that feeling is conveyed. So that's uh, yeah, that's a lot. That's tough. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult because it's almost like disrespectful to grieve and mourn him because he is still alive. Right. But you've still like lost this, this friendship and uh, you know, going to visit him is basically about visiting his parents now. Um, And so this song doesn't really, I guess, wrestle with all of those aspects of it, but uh, it was kind of dealing with some of that. And um, I, I think that like the, outro of the song really matches that tone even more so than like the more ska part in the beginning so the last track shit piss die so this song uh i don't know i don't remember where the the title of the song came from but uh the sound clip at the beginning is from the, the john carpenter film they live and that's where like the first lyrics are we sleep they live is something you see painted on like a wall in that in that film and basically, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's about uh, this guy that finds some glasses that he can put on and it shows like the hidden meaning behind everything. So he'll look at a billboard of this couple on vacation. He puts on the glasses and now the billboard just says the word like consume or something like that. So the song, lyrically, there's a couple contributors on this one, but like the stuff that I put in there was kind of speaking to that and how, you know, media distracts us and keeps us kind of complacent and prevents us from from banding together to you know fight off the the ruling class the predator class the billionaire class and and i think probably nowadays i less less blame that on media than sort of like intentional divisions that are that are being you know produced by tribalism and political factions and whatnot like that but uh that's kind of where where like my lyrics came from the end lyrics Uh, Again, this was written 
a few years after 9-11 and our trombone player Logan had a family member who I want to say was an uncle that perished in 9-11. And so he wrote those lyrics that are about like, I will avenge your death and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, and that was just kind of like, yeah, sure. Have this section and write whatever you want and we're cool with whatever it is that you want to do. And so I don't know if all of the lyrics necessarily gel together um, or like not intentionally. So at least, um, but also, you know, like you said, there was that like intense period of patriotism that happened and the word terrorist was super loaded. So at the time saying something like you're the fucking terrorist for us felt like really subversive and like something you weren't really supposed to say because it was such a loaded word. And, uh, and musically, you know, we, you know, there's like this two-step part in there and we were listening to a lot of like youth crew and like comeback kid and things like that. And we're like, we need the two-step hardcore part. So we, we throw that in there. Um, and then we have again, that like he heavy noodly kind of like breakdown thing. And uh, it's just kind of like a whole mishmash of all sorts of like different, like hardcore kind of influences. Even the band daughters is kind of in there. So yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of all over the place, but it's us being like, let's do all the heavy things in one song and like mash it together. Yeah. And I think that while you're describing kind of a lot of things, it's kind of a great way to end the album that has a lot of things. That's kind of how my view has always been. Nice. Well, we're going to pretend that that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> it always seemed intentional to me. It always seemed like, wow, they really had a plan to pull this all together. Well, it, a really funny thing, speaking of the randomness of this song, there's that section that's like, do that, do, do, do. Do, 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 that whole thing. Sure. Right. The notes that were chosen for that section were chosen because we took a 12 sided die and assigned a note for each number and just rolled it until we had the amount of notes that we needed. And then Greg had to figure out what the rhythm was going to be for them. But wow. we rolled notes and we did not allow anything to be changed. And that's where that whole section came from. Wow. That is wild. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah. So pretty, pretty wacky, but for us, I think we were like, this is so cutting edge and random, but it was, it was definitely fun to, I mean, I think a lot of really cool things come out of having great restrictions on what you're doing as opposed to having this open playing field. So uh, it was kind of a fun challenge to, to make those notes work. That's cool. First time anyone has referenced writing in that way on this show. That's for sure. Nice. <laughs> The other interesting quirk of this song is I, I'm doing that screaming part that's like never truly live. And it sounds like that scream should be held out for much longer. And then there's just like a hard cutoff. And that's because we put this like kind of distortion filter on the vocals. And for whatever reason, it stopped registering the vocals at that point and just cut it off. Uh, and true to a lot of the moments where we're just like, oh, yeah, sure, let's do that. That's cool. That's fun in the moment kind of things we're like it kind of sounds like my speech has been cut off so let's just leave that in there and uh i think i don't know i've really seen any other band do that um so i thought it was kind of a cool effect like at the time um and actually <laughs> i didn't mention this before but the very first track really conspiracy speaking of like weird technical quirks the the breakdown at the end when the horns go wah, wah, that's that was a function of auto-tune choosing between two pitches and like warping the note. 
And we just left that in. We're like, yeah, sure. That sounds like really bizarre and really cool. So some of the touches on the album are just a function of us not being in tune or some weird filter did a thing and we just kept it in. That's awesome. I really thought both of those things were intentional because they sound so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just sort of worked out nicely for us and we, we kept them in. And so, okay. You talked about that you wrote most of, or all of the first section of the lyrics in this one. Mm-hmm. So you wrote the attention, attention part. Yeah, I did. Which as you mentioned was referenced in that Jer track, which was a surprise. And I heard that track and I was like, is this a reference to a TFT song? And um, I mean, Jer has mentioned TFT like many times and uh, right. I know was a, was a fan. So, and then eventually I messaged them and was like, Hey, great, great song. And they were like, yep, definitely <laughs> referenced your song on there. So uh, that was, that was a fun surprise. Yeah. That Still was... relevant after all these years. <laughs> exactly. So cool. Um, for those of us that have been waving that TFT flag, hearing that was like holy shit yeah and at that point already i i had seen um jer mentioned tft a few times like on tiktok or something um but that was like so clear it's like this is the best holy shit (laughs) yeah fun little fun little easter egg for the old tft fans there yeah yeah i love it love to see it yeah so maybe that'll help us uh complete the uh the tone crusade the, the renewed interest, thanks to Jer, we will, <laughs> we will find the rest of the tone. Crowdfund the uh, the detective to, to get on the case. Okay, so anything else on that one? I, I, this song, I don't know why we keep doing this, but I guess we really love very long outros for our albums. Because uh, I think we did it on the one before this and the one after this. And uh, this one's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, like I said, Craig, the drummer did not play to a quick click track. So you can really, I think, hear the 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 rolling tempos that are happening there. And there's even one point when like the beat switches, but it wasn't because that was intentional. It's just because we got so out of the groove that we just kind of switched to that thing. Uh, But I, you know, I love the long, the long, uh, you know, droney, repetitive part parts again i feel like it's kind of a hypnotic thing and it's always just a a fun thing to experiment because i feel like it's not something that within like the ska punk ska core genre is something that's used very often yeah you're right about that definitely not like um just because i listen to them a lot this one not as much the the intro on um we tiag piag i'll say it right this time um <laughs> reminds me more of uh like hum in mm-hmm. this one um but um, I think it's just because I, I listen to them a lot, but um, I'm I'm mostly shocked right now that you just said that that time change tempo change was not intentional. It's <laughs> it sounds so intentional. Yeah, uh, it just sort of just sort of happened, and we 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 went with it. But you know, like so, Jake, who we were recording with, was not big like previous record we did the the producer was like really or the record engineer was totally cool with like punching in and like fixing little things here and there and jake was like really not into punching in stuff so it's like we had to do all those takes in one long take and not like fix things if things kind of went off but uh yeah it all kind of worked out and so you were doing all the parts together then like in a live setting so uh definitely we recorded 
the drums and I think bass together. And then, and we had the scratch guitar track, but uh, we were, you know, we were doing the horns and vocals and things like that at a different, different time. Got it. But so because he did the drums in that way, you had to just go with the drums doing that. Yeah. Got it. I got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, that's crazy. That's so crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy. Wow. This really rocked my world. You have said a number of things that I was surprised by. This is definitely the most surprising one because I that that shift is one of my favorite things. And it wasn't even on purpose. I can't believe it. Well, once again, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about the whole record. You That's did it. it. We, a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these always tend to take a while. So do you have any like closing thoughts, overall things that we didn't touch on? people to shout out like the the platform is yours oh boy i, I you know i feel like i kind of hit everything but I, again shout out to jay goldman who was our engineer on this shout out to george marshall at audio magic who mixed this thing and alan douches at west west side who mastered this thing um and yeah shout out to mitch for being on so many tracks and you know it was definitely a really fun fun time in this in the band's lifespan because you know, we were about to try to go out on the road as much as possible and, and just have a have a good time and see who this would resonate with. So um, for anyone that's just hearing this for the first time, I guess, thanks for listening. And for those of you that have been with us since, you know, 2006, when this thing came out, um, you know, we, we appreciate it. You know, we still get a couple of messages here and there on Facebook and whatnot. And so it, I guess it warms my heart to know that there's a few people out there that still care. Well, it's more than a few. I mean, uh, 2,700 monthly listeners is not nothing. Wow. That's, that's not bad for a band that's, uh, hasn't played in like 11 years. Right. Yeah. That's, it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good. I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Um, so we've more or less squashed the reunion thing. That's not happening. But are there any chance of any kind of reissues or anything, maybe at some point, not just this, but any of the stuff? Um, I, you know, we, we, over the years, we kind of did slowly put all our stuff on vinyl. And the only thing that hasn't gone on vinyl is our first EP, Focus the Fury. Uh, if someone's listening and wants to release it, sure, why not? Um, but, you know, I, I get like most of the messages we get are from people asking if we still have merch for sale. So I could see releasing just like a t-shirt. I know that like a t-shirt is not like some new audio thing to listen to or whatever, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like that might happen. Uh, for the most part, I kind of enjoy letting this thing just sort of lay dormant and letting people discover it as they will. Um, I can't, again, I can't say a reunion won't ever happen, but it seems pretty unlikely. Yeah. Gotcha. It is kind of cool. Like the status that it exists. I mean, we just talked about how many people are still listening. But I mean, come on, obviously I would want to watch TFT again. Sure as shit would buy a record or uh, <laughs> or uh, a t-shirt. So are any of the ones that are on vinyl still available or are they sold out? So I believe Community Records, I know Community Records still has a couple of, of copies of Externalities available, yeah. which is the last record that we did. Yep. Um, and I love how the artwork and all of that came out. So uh, go, go pick that up from Community Records. I'm pretty sure all the fear, everything and the zombies versus robots that asbestos records put out are all completely sold out. Yeah. 
So it's eBay only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I asked knowing the answer, hoping you might say something different than what I saw <laughs> when I was looking it up. But yes, that's what I saw as well. Um, but that's fine. It is what it is. Like you said, it's been a little while. That's what yeah. happens. Yeah. And I know I like I think it would be a lot of fun to play like one or two more shows, but I also, you know, I appreciate when bands can just sort of leave what they did in that time period and let it be a thing that people experienced or they didn't. Um, Yeah. So I guess we'll just by virtue of some members not being super on board with the reunion, let it be that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, there's such a thing as like bands ruining what they had by coming back. And I don't necessarily think that would happen here, but you know, sometimes that happens. And so it's okay to not have every band come back. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, the thing that's weird are bands that come back and like change up their lineup significantly. Hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're having fun, then do whatever it is that you want to do with your band. It's your band. But for me, it's like, unless you're coming back and you're creating a bunch of new music, um, you know, I, I don't understand the impulse to come back and replace like half your band just to play some shows or whatever. Uh, to right. me, that's not like honoring the snapshot in time that your band existed in. So, but hey, yeah. that's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This, this is so much fun. I love talking about this. One of my favorite records of all time. And it's so cool that I got to talk about it. Um, and you reached out with the idea in the first place. I didn't even have to ask you to do it. This is so cool. Well, thank you for having me and, and for, uh, yeah, for, for being down with the idea. I'm, I'm glad that this album has resonated with you. And uh, it's definitely, you know, I, I was planning to do something for the 15 year thing. And so it's way more compelling to hear two people talk than one person yammering <laughs> on for <laughs> an hour about their record. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Of course. Anytime you want to come back and talk about anything else or a different record like let's do it i'm down i'm down let's make it happen that's a wrap on another episode of the scott punk international podcast if you liked any of the music you heard today make sure to check out the show notes of this episode where i have links for you to support all the artists that you heard also make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review so other scott fans can find us you can email the show at scottpunkinternational at gmail.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at scottpunkintl or on Instagram at scottpunkinternational. Really, you can find us anywhere. Just search for Scott International on whatever network you like to use. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar on Patreon at patreon.com slash International. Thank you to Scott Tune Network for the kick-ass theme they provided for the intro and outro of the show. You can support them on Patreon and YouTube. Just search for Scott Tune Network. You can also head over to scott2network.com to grab some of their awesome merch. Also, thank you to iClers for the additional theme music used throughout the radio episodes of the show. You can find out more about iClers on their Bandcamp or any social media site. Just search for iClers. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wherever you are, it's Scott.